0: Please turn in your Bibles with me to God's Word, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are going to focus this morning on uh, verses um, 17 to 19 uh, in our series, but we're going to read this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 6 starting in verse 3 because what Paul starts dealing with in verse 3, he carries on with uh, in verse 17 to 19. So we're going to just look at this slightly broader section this morning. So let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 6 and reading from verse 3. Actually, in most of your Bibles, you'll see that the the passage starts at the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then to verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, just so far in God's word this morning, and Cliff has already prayed uh, that we would hear God speak to us uh, through it. We're almost at the end of Paul's letter to Timothy and I hope that as we look back over our studies over the last couple months you can see the importance of the gospel, that the gospel changes everything and because the gospel changes everything and affects everything it is under attack and therefore we are called to be a people as the series of our of our studies has been to contend for the gospel. Now, there is probably no area where the struggle between the gospel and our sinful hearts is fought more intensely than in this area of money, of finances, our attitude towards money. Who of you here today can honestly say that in the last week, you have given no thought or relatively little thought to the issue of finance? Either the lack of money that you have and all the debts that need to be paid as another month has just rolled by this past weekend, or perhaps your desire for more money and how you are going to get more of it, or perhaps your appreciation of the money that you've got and how you are going to spend it. If the gospel changes everything, which is what Paul has been arguing for in this letter, then it must surely affect our attitude towards money. And so Paul's instruction to Timothy in this section is is absolutely crucial for us in 2023 as probably a society more so than any other in history who are immersed in affluence, in wealth. And as we seek then to to have a gospel-centered attitude towards money. And so although our focus this morning is going to be on verses 17 to 19, Paul's teaching on this topic starts in verses 3 to 10. We considered this a couple weeks ago. And so we're going to just briefly go back and see what Paul says there. And then we're going to focus our attention on verses 17 to 19. Verses 3 to 10 Uh, as a broad section, we're really focused at the false teachers and Paul's opposition of them once again. And we saw that Paul counters their false teaching by pointing Timothy, pointing the church once again back to the truths of the gospel. So we're not gonna focus on, on the false teachers again this morning. But Paul links the problem of the false teachers to a bigger heart problem, a bigger problem with money which he says is motivating these false teachers because of greed. Their desire for money in verse five is really at the heart behind their false teaching. And so although the initial instruction he gives in these verses is kind of targeted at the false teachers, these greedy false teachers, He nevertheless comes to speak more generally to us as Christians about our attitude to money in verses 17 to 19. But he lays the foundation uh, in these verses. And so the question that we all need to to answer this morning is the title of the sermon. Is money your master or your maidservant? In other words, Is money and your desire for wealth something which controls you, something which drives your thinking and your desires and your actions, and thus, I would argue today, ultimately your eternal destiny? Or is money and possessions something which serves you, and it serves you in your service of Christ as you are on your journey to heaven? Now although money seems to be the focus in this section, and it certainly is the focus in terms of application, uh, I want you to see that Paul's instruction to Timothy in this section is more general regarding the way of destruction versus the way of life. And, And then he zooms in to this application of money to show or to illustrate these more general principles. And so, we're firstly going to, to see this morning the way of destruction explained briefly, and then we're going to see it illustrated or applied in terms of a wrong attitude to money, and then we're going to consider the way of life explained and see that applied in terms of a right attitude towards money. So, in the first place this morning, let us consider the way of destruction explained. And again, we have considered these verses a few weeks ago, and and I did mention last week that what Paul says in verses three to five, it's, it's one very long sentence in the Greek, is actually quite a simple, logical unfolding of the way of destruction. So let's read those verses again. Verse three, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So last week I I mentioned that these verses show us that wrong theology leads to wrong thinking Wrong thinking leads to wrong desires, wrong desires leads to wrong actions, and wrong actions ultimately leads to a wrong eternity. Let's just quickly see that as we work through those verses. Wrong theology, verse three. Paul says the way of destruction starts with teaching which does not agree with the sound, healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Teaching which is not in accordance with godliness as explained in the scriptures. Paul has been at pains uh, to explain in his letter to the church in Ephesus that there is only one true gospel. There's only one truth about Jesus Christ, one way of salvation, and that truth is found in the scriptures. And it always, it always produces godliness. So the way of destruction starts with those who deviate from sound words, from healthy theology the life-giving words of Jesus Christ which produce holiness in those who hear them and believe them. And so wrong theology then produces wrong thinking. We see that in verse 4a. He says that those who believe this wrong gospel, this, this false teaching, they are puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. So I hope you see the supreme place of God's truth over all other so-called truth and wisdom of this world. Yes, even AI. If you deviate from the gospel and the words of Jesus and the teaching of scripture, Paul says you are actually puffed up in your own conceit, in your own pride and vanity, and really you understand nothing. What an unpopular thing to say today in our age of enlightenment and tolerance and technology. No, says Paul, there is only one source of truth and it is not ChatGPT. The only source of ultimate truth is God's truth. And so wrong theology, wrong understanding and belief about God will lead you to wrong thinking to pride and to conceit and to foolishness. And so the way of destruction progresses. Wrong theology leads to wrong thinking, which then in 4b leads to wrong desires. He says that those who are on this path have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. A person whose theology is wonky will not think biblically about his life and will start to desire and to crave ungodly things. And here says Paul specifically of these false teachers that they crave, they desire controversy. They crave quarrels about words. They're not governed by the truth. They're not thinking in accordance with God's truth. And so they desire after things which boost their pride and their independence of thought and they twist the truth arguing about what ultimately truth really is. And so when these wrong desires then are given root in our hearts, they in turn produce wrong actions. And we see that in verse four again. They have an unhealthy craving, which produces, he says. What does it produce? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. So wrong theology produces wrong thinking, which stirs up and produces wrong desires, which in turn bears the fruit of wrong actions. And the final step in this way of destruction is a wrong eternity, and we see that in verse 10, wrong theology leads to wrong thinking, leads to wrong desires, which produces wrong actions, And don't think that you can go through all of that and skip the last step, which is a a wrong eternity. Often today we will hear people say, oh, you know, stay away from this church or that church. They teach too much doctrine and doctrine divides. Well, you're right, certainly does. But not the way people mean that. According to Paul, our doctrine, our theology, what we believe about God and Jesus and sin and salvation and holiness, it divides us all into one of two camps. Your theology either leads you all the way down to the way of destruction or it leads you on the way of life. The division around doctrine could not be more real and more extreme So Paul has explained this way of destruction. Now he wants to illustrate it very practically by showing us the false teacher's attitude to money. And so in the second place, we see the way of destruction illustrated. And he does so in a number of places. So we saw that the way of destruction starts with wrong theology. In other words, a wrong understanding of the gospel of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what we've just considered around the Lord's table this morning. If we get the gospel wrong, we get everything else wrong. And so these false teachers believed another gospel. And I need to remind you, Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 7 that any other gospel is no gospel at all. Verse three shows us that these false teachers had a wrong theology because they were not teaching that which is in accordance with the the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we see how their wrong theology distorted their view and led them to wrong thinking about money in verse 5b. They imagined that godliness is a means of gain and the context here is abundantly clear that the gain he is referring to is financial gain. These false teachers, these false prophets saw religion as a means to get rich. In other words, these false teachers of Ephesus were the father of what has commonly been known today as the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and he will make you rich. Now we don't know the details of their heresy, but Paul says it was fueled by a wrong thinking about money, that, that religion and godliness is a means to become rich, to become prosperous and we see this is prevalent in so much of what is called Christianity today, especially so much of Christianity which is broadcast on our kind of DSTV faith channels. Paul is calling out that kind of Christianity, that kind of teaching, false. It's wrong theology and it's part of the journey of the way of destruction. Now let's see how this way of destruction works its way out with regards to money. He says it leads to a wrong desire, namely that of greed, and a desire to get rich. Look at verse nine. Those, he's still focusing on on these false teachers in this section, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. So when we think wrongly about God, especially about God as our creator and as the one who has promised to provide for all our needs in this life, and we start to think wrongly about our own importance and significance and ingenuity, and we start to think wrongly about money and all that it can buy as the source of security and comfort and pleasure, it's not long before we become overcome with a desire to be rich. Verse 9b and 10a go on to tell us that this love of money, this love of money leads, many, uh, leads to many senseless and harmful desires, which in turn leads to all kinds of evil actions, which plunge us into ruin and destruction and all kinds of evil. And if this warning of the way of destruction is not severe enough, that the the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, plunging us into ruin and destruction, look where it ends in verse 10b. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this craving to be rich, this desire for money, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with (coughs) with many pangs. The ultimate end to the way of destruction is eternal death, a departing from the faith, a piercing through with many griefs. So the way of destruction, which by the way, its marketing department promises life and pleasure and fame and prosperity and security and comfort, but in the end it delivers nothing but the opposite only pain and suffering and ultimately eternal damnation. So there we have the the way of destruction explained and and applied in the spiritual battleground of wealth and money. And we would do well to examine our own hearts this morning to see if there's any similarity, any resemblance in our own hearts and our own attitude to money like these false teachers. But what's the alternative? If this is the way of destruction and the way it looks in our lives regarding money, then what is the alternative? What is the way of life? And Paul contrasts the way of destruction with the way of life by looking at a very different attitude towards money that you will find in someone who is walking on the way of life. And so, just briefly, the way of life explained. uh, It's kinda there at the end of verse two. Um, It's really just the opposite of the way of destruction. Uh, It's not explicitly taught in these verses, but it's there at the end of verse two where Paul says, teach and urge these things, namely all the things that I have been saying about the gospel and about the truth of Jesus Christ thus far. So if you go back and you kind of reread uh, Timothy's, uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, you will find that the opposite of the way of destruction is true in all that Paul has been saying. That right theology will lead to right thinking, will lead to right desires of the heart, which will then produce right actions, which will then lead to a right eternity. I'm sure as a young child you can remember your mom or your dad teaching you to button up your school shirt And they said if you start right, you'll end right. If you start wrong, you end wrong. And so it is with the things of God in the life of the Christian. If we start with right theology, with a solid grasp of the gospel, that will shape our thinking, our minds. And as our minds are being transformed about God and about the world we live in, that in turn will sink down and it will produce right desires. And those right desires will then produce right actions, which in the end will lead to a right eternity. That's why I came back again to the statement at the beginning that the gospel changes everything. Because when we really grasp the gospel and and believe it and are saved by it, and we receive the Holy Spirit to live within us, He teaches us and he, He empowers us and He guides us. Surely you can look back in your life and you can say before I was a Christian and now everything has changed. My perspective on the world has fundamentally changed. It changes the way we think, it changes the desires of our hearts, it changes our speech and our actions and ultimately it changes the entire trajectory of our lives and our eternal destiny. That's all true and I hope that's true and I would encourage you to come uh, in a couple weeks time. We're having a baptismal service again and I think we have four or five candidates who in their testimonies will testify of this complete change of trajectory that has taken place in the gospel. Well, if that's true, then surely it must affect the way we as Christians handle money. And so now Paul gets to, he does a bit in verse six and eight and then verse 17 to 19, the way of life both illustrated and applied with regards to money. I think verse six, if you just look at chapter six, verse six, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. This is meant to be seen in total contrast with verses three to five, which ended with a person on the way of destruction believing that godliness would lead to financial wealth, to becoming rich. Paul responds and shows that that person, uh, sorry, it shows that the person who is in Christ, the person who understands the right theology is a person who will think very differently about money. Godliness with contentment is great gain, he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So in contrast to the person who thinks wrongly about money and sees Jesus as a means to become rich, Paul says a person who rightly understands the gospel knows that godliness is not a means to financial gain, but with godliness with contentment. Now that is great gain. The real gain in becoming a Christian is not money, but contentment with what we have from God. It's ultimately rooted in a contentment in God himself. So right theology must certainly, fundamentally transform our thinking about money. You and I as Christians, no matter how much money we have, we must look very different to the world with regards to our possessions and what we do with our money. Paul explains something quite obvious in verse seven. And yet it's something I think missing in the thinking of many people on the way of destruction. You brought nothing into this world and you will take nothing out. So are you really going to devote your entire life to accumulate that which you cannot take with you into eternity? It's actually quite ridiculous when you pause to think about what occupies the majority of people's lives 24-7. But yes, we do live in a real world with real physical needs of food and clothing and shelter, and Paul says if we have these, we should be content. What more do you really need? The word for clothing in verse 8 is the word for covering, and although it certainly refers to clothes, the covering of the body, it also more generally applies to shelter as well. So Paul's saying, with the essentials of life in place, we will be content. Now there's so much more which the Bible says about contentment and being content with what God has entrusted to us. Uh, We don't have time to explore that this morning. Let me just give you two uh, scripture references that we'll read here, Philippians 4 verse 11. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger and facing abundance and facing need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We all know that last part, don't we? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context is, I can be content with what God has given me. Yes, we can maybe do other things through him who strengthens him, but the context of this verse is contentment. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So a right theology about God as our creator and provider and about Jesus as our savior leads to a right thinking about the place of money in our lives. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's a reality of life in this world, but money is not our master. It is our maidservant. It is not there to control us. It is there to be used by us in the service of the Lord with contentment. So this right thinking about money will then affect our heart's desires regarding money and our actions in the way that we spend it. And so now in verse 17, Paul deals with right desires. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So here we see that when we think rightly about God, We who are his children, we will not set our hopes and our desires on the uncertainty of riches. Even with the the most amazing stockbroker and portfolio, what you have today may be gone tomorrow. But our hope, he says, and our desires are to be set on God who richly provides us with everything that we have to enjoy. And again, here we could divert into another whole sermon on the providence of God and caring for his people, richly providing everything that we need, but let's just turn to one passage from Jesus himself uh, to settle our hearts on this point. Matthew 6, verse 25 to 33. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. This is Jesus speaking. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the implication is, of course you are. Jesus didn't die for the birds of the air. He died for you and for me. And so which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire or the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, says Jesus, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the, the unbelieving Gentiles, the pagans, they seek after. This is their whole life. And your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. So seek first the kingdom of God. You see this idea of godliness coming out here. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So right theology leads to right thinking, right desires and perspective about money, and that must lead then to a right action, a right use of our money. So Paul goes on in verse 18 and he speaks of those who are rich in this present age. Now just before you turn off, because you're saying, Clinton, I'm not rich. He must be speaking to someone else here. By any measure of wealth and affluence in the world today, I would probably guarantee that 99% at least of us who are sitting here today would be considered rich by worldly standards. If you drove here in a car from a house which was built with bricks and cement and you have a cell phone in your pocket and you have clothes that you did not make out of stuff that other people threw away but you actually bought them at the shop, then Paul is speaking to you and to me this morning. We are exactly the people he's speaking to and he says, we are to do good, verse 18, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share. When we realize that God is the giver of everything that we have and he gives it to us not to feed our lusts and our greed but to enable us to be faithful stewards of his good gifts, then those who have much should be seeking to do much for the kingdom of God with that which we have been entrusted. We are to do good, he says, to be rich in good works. Very practically, to be generous and ready to share. So if you are rich today, you need to realize that you are not financially where you're at because you are smart, because you work hard, because you are well-educated, anything else like that. You have what you have today because God has given it to you and he's given it to you so that you can abound in good works through generosity and sharing. In other words, you and I are stewards. What we have does not actually belong to us. You cannot take it with you when you die, and so you are meant to use it for God's glory, for God's kingdom while you are here on earth. That's why he saved you. It's it's very sad for me to see so many parents working so hard to build up a financial legacy to leave to their children instead of investing spiritually into their children's eternity by showing them how they should be using their money for the glory of God in serving others. When last have you said to your children, my child... We cannot afford to buy this or that luxury because we've chosen to give this money to someone in the church who really has a far greater need than we do. What about my child? Dad's not gonna work himself to the bone to leave you a great inheritance. Instead, mom and I are going to show you how we use our money to be rich in good works. We're gonna show you how to live generously towards others so that one day when you start working for yourself and you start earning your own money, you will know how to view money in a way which pleases God. I think if we're honest with ourselves today, money remains the master of way too many so-called Christians. So let me remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And we must close, and with this last point, we will see the, the final outcome of the way of life. Right theology leads to right thinking, leads to right desires, leads to right actions, and in the end it leads to eternal life. Look at verse 19. He says in verse 18, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Why? Thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm sure you've heard the saying of the famous Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed at the age of 28 on a missions trip to evangelize to the unreached people of Ecuador. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Well, Jim Elliott was just paraphrasing what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Well, Paul says it very simply and very clearly in verse 18. As you do good, With your money, as you give generously, as you share with those in need, as you are faithful stewards of all that God has entrusted to you. He has an amazing irony. As your earthly bank balance diminishes in the faithful stewardship of Christ, so your eternal treasures abound. Now please don't misunderstand what Paul is saying. He's not saying here that we can buy ourselves points or rewards in heaven, which is why we have to start with right theology. A right understanding of the gospel won't let you jump to such a wrong conclusion. Our salvation is all of grace. It's all a work of Christ to us and for us. It's nothing to do with us. But those who believe right will think right. And we will desire right and we will act right as to how we use our money. And we must not worry about ending this life with nothing. For as we have been faithful stewards of all these material things, so God will be richly faithful to us in heaven. The only retirement planning which lasts into eternity is to store up treasures in heaven. So let me close by quoting a few words from an early church father, John Chrysostom. This was written around 400 AD and how it could have been written to us today. Chrysostom says, if we consider the vanity and the unprofitableness of wealth, that it cannot depart hence with us, that even here it forsakes us, that whilst it remains behind it inflicts upon us wounds, that depart along with us. If we see that there are riches there compared to which the wealth of this world is more despicable than dung, if we consider that it is attended with numberless dangers, this earthly wealth, with pleasures that is temporary, pleasure mingled with sorrow, if we contemplate aright, the true riches of eternal life, we shall be able to despise worldly wealth if we remember that it profits nothing to either to glory or to health or to any other thing, but on the contrary drowns men in destruction and damnation, if you consider that here you are rich and you have many under you, but that when you depart, hence you will go naked and solitary. If we often represent these things to ourselves, if we think about them, if we meditate about them, if we listen to them from others, Perhaps we will return to a sound mind and deliverance from this dreadful punishment. Well, if God's word has maybe challenged you today with regards to your money and the way that it perhaps is your master and not your maidservant in the service of Christ, that perhaps your earthly treasures are actually far greater than your heavenly treasures. Can I encourage you today to bring this to the Lord in repentance, to confess this before him and to start afresh with right theology. Get back to the gospel. Look to Jesus who had everything in the glories of heaven and he gave it all up to become a servant, to purchase your eternal salvation. And he desires for you and for me to share in his eternal glorious inheritance. It's the same Jesus who now calls you to let go of the little things here on earth, the little trinkets that you are chasing after, that you hold onto so tightly. Let go of them, he says, in order to gain everything that he has prepared for you in glory. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us this morning. What a challenge. We who live in such a materialistic world uh, to think rightly about money and about stewards, being stewards of your good gifts to us. Help us, we pray, as we seek to be those people who truly live holy and godly lives in this wicked generation. As we seek to be those who point others to Jesus Christ and what we have in him, may it be reflected in our attitude towards money as we are seeking to be faithful stewards of you and your kingdom here on earth. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.